Welcome to The Change Alchemist. This is your host, Shobhana Vishwanathan, and today's guest is Zoe Chance, Yale professor and author of a new book, Influence is Your Superpower. Welcome to The Change Alchemist. It's such a pleasure to have you, Zoe. Thank you so much, Shobhana. Great to meet you. Zoe, let's start with your origin story, how you got started and um, how you are now a professor at Yale. I started out, well, at some point in my life, I was an actual real life marketing person. So I got an MBA and I was a junior manager at Mattel. I was running a $200 million segment of the Barbie brand. And my job was cool, not as cool maybe as the movie Big for those people who remember <laughs> that movie and they're like, oh, you got to work in a toy company. It wasn't that fun, but it was fun. But I just found myself feeling a crisis of meaning. And we were producing these plastic dolls. Girls were receiving $5 a year and we were selling $2 a second to Barbies. And I was looking at my life and saying, "What? Well, so if I'm radically successful, what happens? I guess I'm selling three Barbie dolls a second. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? And I was wanting to do something more meaningful and I love teaching. I love helping people. So that was what led me to go to academia. And I joined first MIT working with Dan Ariely and then Harvard working with Mike Norton. And then I was super, super fortunate to get my dream job at Yale School of Management where I work now. And I ended up actually stepping off the tenure track to write this book and focus on teaching and sharing influence skills with people around the world. I find the research process fascinating and frustrating because it takes so, so long to do academic research. But then I wrote this book and it also took so, so, so long. It ended up taking five years. So I'm still figuring it all out. <laughs> That's and, wonderful. And your book is called Influence. It's called Influence is Your Superpower. It's the science of winning hearts, sparking change and making good things happen. It just launched. So you and I are talking right now in February and it launched on the first of this month. And already it got up to being the second fastest selling book on Amazon. The ratings change every hour, I guess. So it depends what hour you check it, but it's done phenomenally well. And I'm really, really excited. It's a dream come true. I have been uh, really fascinated and glued to the book. I got the book about four days ago and I'm almost done. Oh my God. It, it's such a good read. It's fascinating. And what struck me was you drew upon experiences from real life and you have actionable insights as to how people can apply this no matter where they are in their career. And I already have a lot of questions lined up for you from some of my listeners, which we can get to eventually. But I'd like to start with the why behind the title, Influence is Your Superpower. Why did you pick influence when you could have picked so many different things? So I absolutely know that influence and in interpersonal influence in particular is the <laughs> magic sauce that makes good things happen. And this is the skill that we absolutely, absolutely need to make almost any of our dreams come true. And the only thing that I would put out off of that list 
would be a spiritual enlightenment, but I don't know anything about that. So I can't answer that. But otherwise, everything we're trying to do, we're either trying to influence other people or we're trying to influence ourselves. And I found when I was working in marketing that it was frustrating to me at the time. My job was consumer marketing, but I spent at least half of my time on just trying to influence my bosses and my colleagues. So doing internal marketing and sales with the team, trying to get resources, attention, motivate people to let me do the stuff that I wanted to do with my team. And so this is the kind of influence that I'm writing about in the book, how to influence people that we know and we care about. Yes, it's helpful for marketing to consumers and B2B marketing and sales as well. But what we didn't have was a book about how do we influence the people that we're influencing most often every day in our regular lives. And I, I would love to hear the questions from your listeners. I also just really wanted to ask you, Shobana, about the title to your podcast. I love it. It's so cool. And can I ask just where did it come from and how did this happen? Thank you. It's funny. I have always been a big fan of the book, The Alchemist from my childhood. And somehow that topic is esoteric, but also it, it, it kind of sparked a thought in me as I was uh, going through COVID and working in a company that works on automation and trying to get, get people to automate work and improve the future of work and do more value added work, right? Remove the, the mundane menial tasks from their lives and have a digital twin or a bot to actually do the accounts payable or the accounts receivable or the employee onboarding. Um, I just thought that, hey, if we're gonna usher in a future of work, what can we do to bring that change? And how do we have agency to, to transform that future of work? So I was thinking of change, I was thinking of alchemy and somehow th those two sort of came together. And so this podcast is sort of telling people you have agency to create the change you want in the world. You can be that alchemist. And so I just thought that taking that esoteric and making it practical was a good way to frame my podcast as it pertains to the future of work. That's how it started. I love it. I think it's so cool. I was definitely enticed by the title and also the graphic, the logo that you have, I think is beautiful. And I, I was thinking about this afterward where when you reached out to me and you told me about this podcast, I was like, oh, the change alchemist. Wow. I have to know what that is. In my book in chapter five, I write about framing and the importance of framing and three frames that are not universal, but so widely applicable that I encourage people to start there if you're gonna name something. And one of those frames is mysterious. Uh -huh. And using the frame of alchemy is so mysterious. And when we have a mysterious frame, it draws our attention because there's something that we don't know that we really wanna find out about. And it has this undertone of magic, but some people are kind of tired of the word magic. So alchemy is a really nice, much more rarely used and, and yes, esoteric, which I think in the sense that you're using it is so appealing as well. This idea that there's this esoteric knowledge that's going to be revealed on your podcast. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Thank you. You talked about the three frames and you also tweeted this morning about unfortunate events that are unfolding across the world, specifically the 
the invasion, as, as you said. And I was just curious to go back to that tweet and figure out what you meant by that tweet. Maybe you can just talk about that tweet. Sure. So it was yesterday that Russia invaded Ukraine and, and today that they're bombing the capital of Ukraine. And I feel really gutted and heartbroken about this. I'm hopeful. I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm upset and I'm praying and doing whatever I can. I, it's not just that all of us who care about people and peace and democracy and liberty and things like this, we all want to support the Ukraine. So Ukraine, <laughs> I just learned recently that it's not the Ukraine. I have a friend there who's in the Ukraine government and we were planning an event together. My book is going to be published. Well, we have had plans to publish it soon in Ukrainian. And we were planning an event together where he was going to interview me like this in a fireside chat. And, um, and so I've just been specifically recently working with people in the Ukraine and in the Ukraine government to try to make this good thing happen where the message that we've been working together to share is about people coming together collaboratively and in solidarity to help each other make good things happen. And there's also, maybe you've gotten to toward the end of the book, is overall a very positive message, but we start sort of light and we get toward the end toward, there's a chapter called Defense Against the Dark Arts. Mm -hmm. And then there's a very personal chapter about an attempted kidnapping by some likely sex traffickers and and then talking about democracy and changing the course of history and huge historic events. So I've been trying to figure out what can I do? I'm sending money. I'm supporting the Kiev Independent, which is a newspaper, an English language newspaper that's trying to stay afloat and able to share information with the English speaking world, which will help a lot. And I wrote to the publisher and trying to reach out to my friend and I haven't heard back from him yet. But something that's been making me really agitated when I look at the news mm -hmm. is all these people calling the situation in Ukraine a conflict. It's not that that's inaccurate, but it's very unhelpful because this is the biggest military action in Europe since World War II and this is an invasion. When we use the frame of conflict, it implies that there's some both sides to it. Like think of, you know, you and a partner having an argument, that's a conflict, right? This situation where Russia invades Ukraine is absolutely an invasion. When we use the frame invasion, then it's really clear which side needs help, who's in the right, who's in the wrong, that something needs to be done rather than just calling it a conflict is something that we're more inclined to observe and not take sides on. So I tweeted that just very recently this morning and a lot of people were liking it and retweeting it and sharing it. And I even promoted it on Twitter to get that frame out there because I believe it's very important to influence people in the media journalists who are writing about the invasion to not call it a conflict. I like that, and, and that clearly is an example of how framing can be used to influence or from the other side, get people sort of more neutral. So uh, a lot of people that are not aware of this could think, oh, it's some conflict that's happening far, far away, when in fact, people's lives are being disrupted and for no reason. And uh, they're forced to flee their homes and become refugees in their own homeland. 
Yeah. And many of them are dying and they're losing their livelihoods and they're losing everything. And I absolutely agree with you, Shobana, about framing. And I wish that I had said this more clearly in the book, even we are framing all the time, whether we mean to or not. So in the situation, using the word conflict is a frame that's having an unintentional action where we can shift to using framing more intentionally and have more of the effect that we want. So that is an excellent segue into a topic I want to delve into, which is uh, manipulation, right? Often influence and manipulation are confused. And so it might sort of behoove our audience to, to kind of come up with a, a definition of influence that's universally acceptable. Because sometimes influence gets confused with Machiavellian tactics or Chris Voss type negotiation. What is influence, Zoe? I, so all of us who work on this have our own definitions of influence. And you know, even if you look in a dictionary, it's still just people <laughs> defined. People are choosing their frame for influence. My frame for influence is very broad. It's the biggest possible umbrella. And it's anything that impacts someone's thinking or behavior. So that includes manipulation. It includes Machiavellian persuasion. And persuasion, by the way, in my framing of it, and a lot of people share this, is influence through communication, through words. Mm -hmm. Influence can include other things like nudges in behavioral economics, where we might change the environment to influence somebody's behavior. But about manipulation, so this is a type of influence and the grayness or ambiguity around what's manipulation and what's not is such an important question and topic because that's what has so many of us who are kind and well-intentioned people trying to do good in the world, it has us holding back from being as influential as we might be because we don't want to manipulate anyone. And there are many people who think that anytime you might be influencing someone and they don't realize what you're doing, that you might be using some strategy and they don't know it, we might feel manipulative. I prefer, I think it's much more helpful to define manipulation as something that's being done without that person's knowledge and also with no concern for their best interests. That's so, a good delineation, I think, but you're saying influence could include manipulation. It does, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And which is why a lot of people can persuade people um, and those people that are being persuaded don't know what's happening to them. Yes, and they're, they're just like framing, as you mentioned, that we're framing all the time. We are influencing people all the time. We are being influenced all the time. And sometimes this is people trying to influence us for our own good without our knowledge. Sometimes it's people you know, trying to influence us for their own ends, but it's fine for us. And, and sometimes it's people trying to take advantage of us. So that's what I was writing about in the Defense Against the Dark Arts chapter. In chapter four, uh, you talk about the twin paradoxes of charisma, and this is another aspect to influence. We've all met leaders at work. I guess actors are the prime example of charismatic people, and some of them have gone on to become politicians and people of repute. You also talk about how you almost fainted at a Prince concert because uh, 
uh, you were so uh, enthralled by Prince and uh, his charisma and how he exuded charisma. So a couple of questions to, to unpack in this topic alone. Is it that you're born charismatic or can you cultivate charisma? And what does that really mean? We can absolutely cultivate charisma. And this is, to me, the most important part of the Prince story, which is that even though Prince, to me and many other people, is one of the icons of a charismatic individual, love him, love his music, heartbroken when he died, Prince is, has been so charismatic that he literally makes people faint. So at that concert, what happened was I was waiting for two hours for him to come on stage along with everyone else in his small club in Las Vegas that he owned, 3121. When he comes on stage, he looked directly into my eyes. I was totally sure. And the first words of his first song were something like, are we alone? And I turned to my friend. <laughs> Eldar, who was with me, and I, I whispered, oh my God, I'm going to faint. But then the stranger next to me on the other side falls down unconscious in a dead faint. Paramedics come and they're loading her onto a stretcher. And I asked them, oh my God, has this ever happened before? And they said, it's not unusual wow. because it was so charismatic. And he had that laser focused attention that makes you feel like you're the only one in the room. The only other person who I've experienced that with, ironically, maybe the polar opposite of Prince, and this was Jimmy Carter in his 80s. And he probably wasn't, no, undoubtedly was not the great president, a great, one of the greatest presidents, but he's done so much great stuff since his presidency. He's been, to yeah. me, one of the very greatest ex-presidents. So I got to meet him and I was getting a photograph taken with him and he puts his arm around me and this is pre me too. And he's so gentle. I took this in the kindest way, but he puts his arm around me and he says, Oh, you have a lovely figure. And my vision just clouded over <laughs> about to faint. And I don't think that it was me being sexually attracted to Jimmy Carter, but it was his charisma, which came from his power and also his friendliness and his connection with me. The same I thing, Prince. I've had a similar experience with ex-CEO of Cisco, John Chambers. Really? Um, he shook my hand and I almost kind of fainted too because um, he looked right into my eyes and he said, how are you? And that's all he said. But it felt very personal and it felt like he was looking into my soul almost. And it's, it's a very weird feeling. I know exactly what you're saying. And later I realized he is very charismatic for other individuals too. It's so, amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So you, have you I, done much research on this? So I've been doing informal research in classes with executives and students for the past, not quite the past decade, which is how long I've been teaching influence, but when people started asking me to teach them charisma. And I, I started digging into research and then serving people myself to understand about charisma. Oh, by the way, oh, the Prince story. So <laughs> Prince was super charismatic. But I forgot the most important part is that he was actually one of the least charismatic musicians originally. He was so exceptionally uncharismatic that after Warner Brothers had signed him because he was so talented, and even though he had a number one hit on the Billboard chart, this was, I think, back in 1979, maybe his number one hit was I Want to Be Your Lover. And 
and his fans wanted to go to Prince concerts, but Warner Brothers said, no, we are not letting you perform. We're not putting you on the road because we've seen you and you turn your back to the audience and you just mumble in a whisper whenever you try to talk to them. So you embarrass us. Uh uh. But Rick James was doing his super freak tour and he thought this would be a great opening act. So he invited Prince to be the opening act. And at first, according to Rick James, he was being booed. So Rick James fans were booing Prince. He shows up in a <laughs> um, jacket and women's underwear and just ridiculous, crazy. But then what Prince decides is he's going to practice and learn charisma and he's going to learn to connect with the audience. So he starts emulating and practicing and doing over and over again the things that Rick James does to connect with the audience. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at other performers to see what is it that they do. And things like, not just when you're performing in the songs, but call and response and talking to the audience in between. And so Prince developed his own charisma until Rick James ended up being jealous. And wow. he was, he, and Rick James himself was telling people how, how jealous he was of Prince and all the attention that Prince was getting. So we absolutely can, maybe we're not going to have people faint. I don't know. And that shouldn't really be the goal, probably. And we're but, all not, we're all not performers or actors. So that's, that's yeah. that too. Uh -huh. Yeah. But like John Chambers mm -hmm. and the CEO of Cisco, right? We all have the opportunity to connect with people and to give them that feeling of, we are the only ones in the room and it's an electric feeling. And I, I wish that I could do an audio demo and I don't know how to do this, but I write in the book about how you can absolutely demonstrate this thing and that electric connection I call shining. And I teach you in the book how to do it in a room full of people. So you don't even have to know how to do it yourself. If you have a group of people who wants to practice it with you, you can practice it. And it's so exciting. It's so electric. It is exciting. And uh, I will point people to that chapter in the book for sure, because it's chapter something four. I want to learn as well. Great. It's uh, hard to do it on your own, but as long as you have a willing group of people, it's not very complicated. The other chapter that stood out for me was the chapter on creative negotiation, because this is a topic that's interesting to me. It's interesting to a lot of my listeners because we're always negotiating, right? We're trying to get something and give something. You talk about the story of Gloria Steinem in Africa, and maybe you could tell us that story, and I have some questions on negotiation. I love this story because it illustrates so perfectly my very favorite influence technique, which is so, 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 so simple, and it's so powerful that I call it the magic question. And for everyone listening, I encourage you to use the magic question immediately after you learn the story. You can use it in almost any context. You can use it again and again, even with people who you have taught. The magic question is just what would it take? And the story that Gloria Steinem told when she came to my hometown of New Haven a few years ago is how she was studying and speaking about and doing a lot as an expert on the topic of sex trafficking of women and girls. She was at a conference in Zambia on that topic. And then after the conference, she goes to vi visit this small village in a rural area near a game preserve. And three young women from that village had been sex trafficked the previous year and never heard from again. Mm. She's sitting down on a tarp in the middle of a barren field 
with a group of women and she asks the circle of women the magic question. She says, what would it take to prevent that from happening to any more of the young women in this village? They told her an electric fence, mm -hmm. an electric fence. She asked, they said, when the corn reaches a certain height, the elephants come and they eat it and they trample it. We have nothing to eat. We have nothing to sell in the market. We have no money to send our kids to school. And these girls and their families were desperate. So Gloria Steinem says, all right, listen, if I raise the money for the fence, will you clear the fields and build it? They say, yes. She goes back home. She raises a few thousand dollars, which is all that it takes, sends this money to the women. And the way she tells it, she comes back to visit a few years later. There's a bumper crop of corn and no women have been sex trafficked from that village since they got the fence. The magic question is magic because first of all, it's respectful. You're acknowledging that the other person is the expert on their obstacles, their situation. They know things you don't know. Like you couldn't possibly have known that this is actually a human wildlife conflict problem, mm -hmm. not just a sex trafficking problem, not even just a poverty problem. And so often the solution is so much simpler than you might expect that it might be. And then the part that's not obvious, that's the other alchemical force of the magic <laughs> question is that when you ask the magic question and they give you a roadmap, what they're doing is implicitly agreeing to support the outcome when those steps have happened. So they give the trail of breadcrumbs. You can come back and say, okay, great, here we go. You said what it would take was this. Here's how that happened. And now can you help me? Like if you were asking your boss for a raise or a promotion, you can ask, what would it take for me to get to the next level? Or what would it take for me to be at the top of the salary band for this role? Your boss will be happy to tell you, right? They want you to succeed and thrive and be happy there. And then you come back and you say, here's what you said it would take. And here's how that's happened. And your boss will now feel that they, in order to be consistent with their own, like walking the talk, right? That they need to support you to do whatever they can to help you get that raise or promotion. So my interpretation of this story about the elephants is that it wasn't just the electric fence, but it was the women who said what it would take is an electric fence. They would make sure that none of their friends and daughters and neighbors were gonna be sex trafficked from that village since they got the fence. A very inspiring story. And it often uh, amazes me that a simple thing like this can lead to change. So thank you for sharing. And I think that's something I would love to incorporate um, in my life because it's easy. It's so the results. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I encourage you and everyone to be thinking about asking that question, what would it take as a means of starting the conversations that lead to policy changes too. So a couple of executives specifically who've come through my workshops have asked, what would it take in situations like at the New York Times? It's not like Silicon Valley, where at least I understand that there are a lot of tech companies that offer the employee benefit of freezing eggs or sperm for whoever, any employees who want to have control over their reproductive destiny in media companies that are much less profitable, it hadn't happened anywhere. And this director named Dalit Shalom, she came through my class, she got excited. And over the course of a year, 
she asked in meeting after meeting again and again, what would it take for us to change this policy so that employees can have re the reproductive freedom that we want and do the work that we want and thrive. And finally, one year later, they, she was actually to get the policy change where now the New York Times covers egg or sperm freezing for any employee who wants to do it. They're the first and so far still the only media company to do that. So which kind of um, is amazing because we have more power than we think we do. And that power is through influence. And yeah. does it transcend gender? Do you feel like women have an advantage or disadvantage in this topic in particular? I don't know if women, I mean, women have both advantages and disadvantages. And the question of how does it uh, net out? Do we overall have an advantage or do we overall have a disadvantage? I don't know because it depends on the situation. I feel that for me, my gender has been an advantage because I'm in a role and an industry where there aren't as many women as men. And we're at a time in history where because of diversity and inclusion initiatives, I get to be on in among the group of people, even though I'm white, because I'm a woman, I still get to be among the group of people who gets on the margin a little bit of a leg up. And there are, of course, plenty of other situations where sexism plays a role. One of the reasons that I believe it's been an advantage to me in teaching influence and writing about it to be a woman is that throughout history, women have had less power than men. And we have absolutely had to, for survival reasons, learn how to use our interpersonal influence skills to make things happen at home, at work, in politics, in our communities, everywhere. These are the kinds of skills that women have been informally learning and passing down to their daughters throughout all of human sure. history and sure. putting some science behind it. And it's not that men don't know how to do this also, it's just that women have had to learn it a bit more strategically than men have. Yeah, one of the canonical books on influence that I read growing up was um, Cialdini's, uh, Rob Cialdini's book on influence. He talks about liking as one of the concepts um, in influence, but I always felt like that was a double-edged sword because you could keep making people like you, but not have influence, right? Because as women, sometimes we tend to be givers, not to stereotype women. So you talk about this a little bit, um, you know, paraphrasing Adam Grant's book, uh, Give and Take. Maybe you could talk about the, the power of saying no and why give and take is important and how do you balance it? I love how you say it, not to stereotype women and then go ahead and stereotype women. I do exactly <laughs> the same thing. It just makes me laugh. It is true that women tend to feel more pressure to be agreeable and to say yes when other people are asking us for favors or help or things like this. We also tend to be asked more often than men do. There is this cultural pressure on us to be compliant. It leads to a situation where it's very hard for us as women to survive and thrive if we are judged as being not warm. In social judgments, all of our judgments of other people are gut reactions to people when we first meet them, but they're happening and being updated on an ongoing basis. The two dimensions we're being judged on are warmth and competence. 
unconsciously people are asking themselves about us, do I like you and do I respect you? The liking question is answered more quickly than the respect question. It's more powerful and it's stickier. The main way that we have people like us is by expressing warmth. And the easiest way to do that is to like them and just show them that we like them. And there are all kinds of different ways that we can do that and we all know how to do it, but we should be more intentional about doing that. As a woman, you and I and all of our sisters need to express more warmth than men do because women differentially get backlash if we don't express warmth. And we get called all kinds of gender specific B words, like for example, bossy and all the other ones. <laughs> but so women need to express warmth, but if we are not perceived as also being competent, which is how people judge, do I respect you? Then like you're saying, Shobana, people might like us, but we don't have any influence. So women need to do both. They need to nail warmth and competence to be respected and to become ultimately influential. We need to have people both like and respect us. Men do better doing the same things women do, being warm, being competent, expressing those things. However, they can sometimes still thrive when they're not warm. And if you think of some of the most famous, successful, and unlikable people, almost all of them are men. Mm. That's not a coincidence. And if you think of like, who's a woman who's famously successful and just exemplifies warmth and competence, Oprah would probably be an iconic example. But in the business world, examples are fewer to come by unless you look at fashion or media, which are different from technology, for example. So I I do think uh, you bring up a good point there. Can I ask you how you felt? So you've moved up to a role of power and respect within your organizations. Have you felt pressure from other people to be warm or to be less warm? Like what, I know a lot of women get pressured to be a particular way. What has your experience been with that? My experience has been when I've been myself, which all the books tell you to be authentic, I've been told you're too nice, even by my own reports. They say, hey, you're, you're really too nice. And, and when I've swung in the other direction, I've been called the B word. So it's hard for me to find that balance. And so I've decided that being nice, but not being a friend to everyone is probably the, the best I can do. Because being friendly, but not a friend to everyone is kind of my take on how I can influence because you don't want to be rude, but by the same token, you want to be not familiar. So about not being a friend to everyone, um, are you, do you mean not to be so intimately familiar with people say who work for you? Or Yes, yes. And also not extend myself when I've got enough on my plate, like you point out in your book, I tend to do favors for people, try to help everyone in my orbit, including people that work for me and not, uh, with the result that I have to resort to meditation and gratitude journaling, self-care. So certainly I think I am the stereotype of someone that's a giver 
And that's, it's been hard for me to pull back. And I really identify with, with saying no, that chapter of your book, because to me, I think that is a problem a lot of women face, although they won't admit it. Yeah, a lot of us don't realize how hard it is for us to say no until we start practicing saying no more consciously and more often. And I invite people and anyone who's listening right now, I invite you if you want to, to try a 24 hours of no challenge where you say no for the next 24 hours to every single person who asks you for something personally, professionally, small, big, things you want to do, things you don't want to do. You can always change your mind later. And obviously, you're the boss of you. Don't ruin your life. If <laughs> someone proposes marriage and you want to say yes, don't be like, no. But <laughs> what's really helpful in a challenge like this, and this also relates to the giving and being depleted by our generosity, is to start to separate the concepts of warmth and generosity. Because when people use the word nice, they might mean either one, or they might mean both. And, and they also might mean something just strictly performative, which is not even appealing. But we can be warm without having to be generous all the time. Mm. So we can warmly draw boundaries and say no. We can warmly advocate for ourselves and ask for things. A lot of times we don't say no because we don't want people to think that we're not nice or that we're greedy or selfish or we don't like them or something like that. So I, I practice a lot and I find liberating and my students do too, saying no, where you're expressing warmth toward the person and you're just saying no to the thing. Like just as a tiny example, I got invited this week to go to a Shakespeare play of Twelfth Night by a person I like. And so I say to that person so that she will invite me to do something again in the future. Oh my God, I would love to go to a show with you. And I absolutely hate 12th night. So it's very clear. We're definitely not going to go. And she just replies, ha, huh, that's a perfect reason not to go. Right. But she knows, okay, great. I can invite Zoe to do stuff when people are inviting me to, well, Actually, most of the time when strangers ask me for advice, I've stopped even responding to them because then they just keep following up when they're asking for <laughs> but, but I can say, hey, I'm so glad you took the message of the book to heart and you're asking, good job. I don't have time, but I wish you luck. Something like that. So that you're talking about the chapter where you say, just ask, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, to tell us more about it, because I, I, I do think there's an art to that. There is definitely an art to it, and most people suck at it. Mm -hmm. Most people are artless <laughs> when, <laughs> when they're asking for things, and um, it's in business and romance and personal lives. And one of the reasons to do the no challenge is to suck less at asking and be more graceful at asking. This is maybe even the biggest reason to do the no challenge. When you get more comfortable saying no, you get more comfortable with the idea of other people saying no to you. Mm -hmm. And so when you're asking, you can do so more gracefully and with less pressure, you're reaching out and just making an open invitation. And because you're not pressuring them, you're making it more comfortable for them to say no, but they're actually more inclined to say yes because they don't have anything to resist. 
I love it. So, so say no to let the other person say no, to encourage them actually ultimately to say yes. And the no challenge is a really fun exercise. Even if you think you don't need to do it or you're going to hate it, you'll find some other surprises by the experience of doing it, but I don't want to ruin it by telling you what those will be. Uh, absolutely. And uh, sort of the um, framework of your book, uh, how people can kind of wrap their head around it. What are one or two or three nuggets you can share before they go and buy the book and read it? The biggest, most important piece is to shift your whole idea of influence from a transactional mindset where the other person is a means or an obstacle to you getting what you want to a relational idea of influence where we are working toward doing great stuff together. What your goal should be is that they want to say yes to you. Mm -hmm. now and in the future, whether they're able to say yes to this particular request or not. Okay, so move from transactional to relational focused. That's one. Yeah, and all the techniques that I teach are comfortable on both sides. Okay. So okay. one of the cool things about this book and this whole philosophy is that you will actually want to share this with people who are trying to influence you, like your boss or your employees or you know your partner, your kids, whoever these people are that this is a mutual vision of influence. Um, if you want to just have like a couple quick takeaways, that would be helpful probably for listeners, right? Yes, yes. Actionable, not just mindset. So the magic question is one, what would it take? The 24 hours of no challenge, I challenge you to do this. And if you wanna say no to the challenge, you're the boss of you, that's fine. And then the third thing that we haven't talked about yet, but which I write about is, make it as easy as possible for the other person to take action on whatever it is you're trying to influence them to do because people tend to take the path of least resistance. It's not always easy for you to make it easy for them. The goal should be though, make it as easy for them as possible. And that is a great uh, frame to put in place um, with an employee boss question or negotiation or where you're trying to get a, a raise or a good project you have to make it easy uh, for them to help you. For whatever it is that you're trying to do, make it as easy as possible. And the boss situation is a great concrete example of before you have your regular meetings with your boss, you have, you manage up. And so you have, here are the questions that I have, here's the resources that I need, here are my priorities. And here, when I come to my boss with, a problem, I come with a solution, right? If my boss wants options, I come with multiple options and I explain here are the advantages and drawbacks of each one so that my boss can say, okay, great, go with option B, boom, done. I did want to touch upon another important um, concept that I picked up uh, from the book, uh, system one and system two thinking from Daniel Kahneman, and then you call it gator and judge. So I love the analogy and I wanted to see how you could maybe explain this with an example. Yes, definitely. The, the idea of system one and system two is the foundational concept in behavioral economics, which is the discipline that I come from, and also Danny Kahneman. Behavioral economics, for those not familiar with it, is the love child of psychology and economics, where 
Psychology is the study of mental processes. Economics is the study of social behaviors. It includes monetary things like buying and selling stuff, but it also includes things like marriage and violence, any social behaviors. When you bring these two things together, behavioral economics is interested in the mental processes that yield social behaviors, especially when economics doesn't perfectly predict them. Like it's not just a matter of incentives, but some kind of weird thing going on in people's minds. So that's the background that I come from. System one and system two for people who have read or many more people than that who've bought and then not finished Danny Kahneman's book, <laughs> it's brilliant, but it's 800 pages long. So in thinking fast and slow, system one is the fast and system two is the slow. I use the analogy of the gator and the judge because as I've been teaching behavioral economics, I've learned that it's just not easy to remember which is system one and which is system two because it's so abstract. So system one, the gator, is the unconscious, intuitive, emotional, habitual system that's primal. It's like an alligator lurking below the surface of your con conscious awareness and it's constantly scanning the environment for threats and opportunities. Like an alligator specifically, it's incredibly efficient. So that's the fast part, but it's also incredibly lazy. An alligator weighs up to a thousand pounds, brain the size of a walnut. They only need a couple pounds of meat per week and they can actually go for up to three years without eating at all. So I used to think of them as being these vicious creatures. And what I learned from observing them is that the dominant reaction to everything in their environment is nothing. They are the laziest creatures on earth. And even when I'm feeding them and tossing pieces of raw meat near them, if it's not in the bite zone between the nose and the tail where they don't have to actually move their body, but they can just move their head to snap it up. Alligators are so lazy that unless some opportunity comes within the bite zone, what they're gonna do about it is nothing. And people are very similar, that even if they're inclined and interested and motivated to do the thing that we're asking them to do, if it's not easy, they're very unlikely to take action. So an example of that would be everything that you ever made a New Year's resolution about. Do you? Shobana, do you make New Year's resolutions? I do make New Year's resolutions, although I keep resolving not to make them the next year. <laughs> I am guilty as charged. <laughs> I love the New Year's resolution to not make New Year's resolutions. So I'm amazed that a third of people apparently are able to fulfill their New Year's resolutions, at least for a little while. I've never been successful. When we are making a New Year's resolution, it's about something we care about, we're motivated, or we wouldn't choose that as the thing. But the reason that we're not taking action on it is that it's not easy and it's been difficult. And we're assuming that motivation is what was lacking, but actually motivation is what was there. And ease is what was lacking. Friction is what was preventing us from taking action on the New Year's resolution. I have no idea if this will be helpful at all, but do you have a New Year's resolution for this year? I do have many, but I can tell you one of them. I can't swim by the way. So one of my New Year's resolution is to learn swimming. Okay, amazing. So 
what would it take for it to be easier for you to learn swimming? I don't know. Finding a private coach, I feel like, oh my God, I'm old and I can't do this. So I guess I, I want some something private. Okay, great. So you want a private coach that will make it, I don't know if it makes it easier, but it makes it more pleasant for you. And that's really important for any kind of behavior that we want to develop is that it's not just easy, but it feels good. And what I could imagine could make it really easy for you is if one of your listeners who's listening to the show and you're in Silicon Valley, right? And you have a bunch of listeners who are in Silicon Valley and everyone who's listening, you might know somebody in the Bay area, Silicon Valley area, who is a swimming coach and could reach out to Shobana to offer their services. Are you willing to pay a swimming coach? Of course. Okay, of course. All right, so let's make it as easy for you as possible. And listeners, even if you're listening to this two years from now, you don't know if someone else has already reached out to Shobana with a suggestion about a swimming coach. So whenever you're listening to this, please, if you know a swimming coach in the Bay Area, reach out to Shobana. And do they have your contact information? Is they it do. They do. All right, great. I'm so, mortified. I'm mortified. I actually told you what I what my resolution is. And I feel a little like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Now you'll have to actually do it. And I love your resolution. I hope my husband doesn't mind me saying that he also doesn't swim. And as an adult, it's awkward and he kind of wants to have a coach. So I don't know a coach in the Bay Area. This motivates me. Right. To help so there are more people because I, I just hang out by the pool and sip my cocktails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not bad, right? That's not a bad way to spend your time. Um, but yes, so now we're making it as easy for you as possible. What you have to do is exactly nothing. You just have to someday open your email and there's going to be a note from a coach. And then at that point, it's going to be hard for you not to. It's going to be harder for you not to learn how to swim than to learn to swim. Thank you. Thank you for uh, doing that exercise with me. I do want to talk about some topics that my listeners have asked me to uh, bring up with you. One of them is, as a young professional meeting with senior leaders, I feel I'm not heard. How can I be heard when I don't have a title or position? And I'm not sure how to frame my questions in a way that they'll be heard. Here's one very tiny, but very helpful piece of actionable advice for everyone who's not in charge. And this was a piece of advice that I got from a manager that I had a terrible relationship with and I struggled, but this one thing changed my life and I've been sharing it with a lot of other people. He said, be one of the first three people to speak in any meeting. So if you decide whatever your level is in the hierarchy, if you're in charge, you don't need to be one of the first three people to speak. So let other people speak for God's sake. But if you decide you're gonna be one of the first people to speak, what happens is that through the rest of that meeting, first of all, other people have registered your presence. And so you notice in a group that people are, when they're speaking, they're only making eye contact to one or two or three other people. They're not making eye contact to everybody in the group. And the people who are not being made eye contact with, if you're not on the receiving end, you feel a little bit invisible. Mm -hmm. And so other people have registered your presence. And then because they registered your presence, subconsciously, they're noticing you when they speak. And because they're noticing you, then you feel 
present in the room and you feel more empowered to speak more. It's also that if you haven't spoken early in the meeting, as the meeting goes on and on and on, it gets harder and harder and harder to speak for the first time. Because when you suddenly speak up for the first time and people had forgotten that you were there, then all the attention is like onto you and you're like, ah, sorry, everybody. And the bar for yourself gets higher and higher and higher about how important and smart and eloquent you have to be when you do speak up. If Excellent. you decide, just Excellent be- advice. Mm -hmm. Great. And, and you don't need to have anything smart to say. You can ask a question and it can be in the informal part before the meeting even starts. You can just make a comment about the weather or current events or just ask somebody how they're doing. Don't have a high bar for yourself for what you say just have a high bar for yourself for when you say it and make it early. Okay, good. The second question um, someone had was, in many companies, people travel in cliques. So they might have come from the same company, they might be from the same country, or they might have something in common. How do you wield influence when you're not one of them and not part of the club? This is a huge challenge. And in research on social networks, the research that I'm familiar with is on gender, but I'm sure that research on race and culture would look similarly, where between women and men tend to have social and professional networks that overlap. So men tend to socialize with people from work. Women tend to socialize with people outside of work. And there's a whole slew of interesting and problematic things that come from that, among other things that men have been less comfortable with virtual work and are more excited to get back to the office. And women, because they lost their social support, but women didn't. And so women are much more comfortable with the virtual thing going on because we still are con in contact with our friends. But anyone who is not in the dominant group and doesn't end up socializing with people from work, you feel like an outsider and you are seeing people who are in this dominant group that can feel like a clique. You're seeing these people get promoted. You're seeing their ideas get shared. You're seeing the spotlight of glowing attention get shined on them. And it is really important to be reaching out to people intentionally to have personal contact with them and it doesn't have to be socializing outside of work, but actively reminding yourself to go and have a chat with them or have like, if you're in person, see if they might have lunch at some point. It would be nice if they would reach out to you, but if they're not, then you have to be the one to reach out to them. And most people are friendly and most people are happy to get a lunch invitation or something like this. And if you end up traveling to some meeting, find a time to grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine with them, whatever that is, you will not necessarily become part of the dominant group or the clique, but that doesn't prevent you from having individual friendly relationships with the people in this group. It just takes more work and it sucks that you have to do more work, but <laughs> that's where we are right now. So not to be shy, but uh, take the first step and be intentional about it is what you're suggesting. Yeah. yeah, and to reach out personally 
and not just professionally. Mm -hmm. And one way of doing that is just to ask people advice. People love to be asked advice. They love to be asked their opinion. And if you're not going to take a bunch of their time, that's also very helpful. But asking advice and be sincere. Don't just make up questions and ask advice about something that you care about. And then you're actually going to take action on it. It's an underused like I'm going to call it an influence strategy, but that's not the reason that you should do it. It's an, an underappreciated way to build relationships. Excellent. And Zoe, you've written a book about influence being a superpower, but what is your superpower? Is it influence or something else? One of my superpowers is influence, but my most important superpower is love. And I have been blessed by the most loving mom I could possibly imagine. And for anyone who's familiar with Amma, the hugging saint, she goes around the world. So she hugs people. That's her superpower. And that is my mom. And I'm so blessed with feeling full of love and being able to express this to other people. I'm able to like like people, build relationships, make friends, not with everyone on earth. There's some people I hate because they're odious, but (laughs) almost with almost anybody. And that also comes along with a superpower of forgiveness. So it's, I don't expect people to be perfect. And that's another quality that helps me be more influential. So I love getting to go and spread messages of love and help people be more influential in a a kind and loving way. That is so touching, Zoe. I've never heard that before. So it is nice that um, people still believe in simple qualities like this and to have a better life, right? With love. Thank you. And the other question I had for you was books that have influenced you. Are there a couple that come to mind? So you mentioned one of them, which is Cialdini's book, Influence, which was so pivotal for me. That was a big reason that I switched from academia to come back to grad school. I knew I said from academia to academia to go to grad school. I knew I wanted to leave Mattel, but his research was fascinating to me. And that's what led me to want to do research like that. But the book that I want to recommend, if anyone is interested in an inspirational book on influence is called Love Does. And this was a book written by Bob Goff, who is maybe the most audacious asker I have ever heard of. And I don't even want to spoil these incredible stories that he tells. He, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just blown away and so inspired by this man. There's a chapter called The Interviews that I not only assigned to my MBA students, but I read this to the kids in my daughter's third grade classroom to inspire them as well. All of the proceeds from his book go to charity. And because I was so inspired by him and this book, when I wrote my book, I don't send all of my proceeds to charity, but I send half the profits to an organization called 350.org, which is an international network of climate activists. And I really believe like Bob Goff does and many other people in the Spider-Man doctrine that with great power comes great responsibility. And so as we become more influential, the prize is that we get to work on bigger and bigger problems with the successful givers who are forming this secret cabal with us where we all try to help each other out and try to make the world a better place. 
I love it. If there were three pieces of advice you want to leave my listeners with, what would they be? First of all, forgive yourself for being imperfect. Whatever it is that you're guilty about, it's nothing. <laughs> and the second thing is try to forgive someone else who has transgressed against you because so much of your energy is being depleted by your own guilt and by conscious or unconscious resentments that you have, that this is an underappreciated obstacle to our becoming influential. And then the third thing I would say is just ask. <laughs> Love it. And as we see the future of work unfold and influence become a bigger piece of the corporate world, give me in your own words what the future of work would look like in a perfect world. In a perfect world, the future of work would be that we wouldn't have to do it for money because we have created so much value that there is an abundance of food, there's an abundance of healthcare, education. And this is the Star Trek vision where that's, that's what, that is the world that they're living in. And that is absolutely possible. We are creating so much value and it's just that it's not evenly distributed. We could actually already live in a world where most of the, almost all of the unpleasant tasks are automated and people get to do the kind of work that we want to do because we enjoy it and because we feel fulfilled by it and not because we need money. So this is a, a distant future vision, but I really believe that will happen. Love it. And I hope it comes true in my lifetime, at least. Me too. Where can people find you, Zoe? People can find me at zoechance.com. And the information is there about the book. There's a newsletter for free tips. And you'll be finding out if you're on the newsletter list about a free online course I'm developing with Coursera. It'll launch this summer and it's called How to Ask for Anything. And it's just a series of challenges. It will be published in eight different languages and it's gonna be a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to taking that course. Sounds like a fun one to take. Great, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Zoe. And I look forward to putting all this information in the show notes and chatting with you if you're in Silicon Valley anytime soon. I would love that. I loved talking with you, Shobana. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Change Alchemist with Zoe Chance. If you enjoyed the show, do listen into previous episodes and stay tuned for an exciting episode with David Allen next week. Thank you and stay tuned.